Baby, you can drive my car. Uh, an old Beatles song. Uh, we're back with another edition of Making Money. Ron Hebert is the financial coach, former retired, well, he's a retired portfolio manager. Uh, Ron, let's talk a little bit about the North American auto industry. Uh, you know, we all know the big three. We used to call it Chrysler. It's now Stellantis. But Ford and General Motors, they're the big three. And you said you had a question from a listener about this sector, wondering if it would be something to look at investing in. And so where do you stand on that? Well, these stocks are really cheap, so let's take a look at the tea leaves, so to speak, before uh, this listener wants to invest in them. Let's look at the upside. Let's look at the downside. And the downside, there's four things that uh, really stand out and is why investors have, frankly, been avoiding um, the North American car industry in droves. And the first one is higher wages will make them uncompetitive. You know, auto factories in the U.S. pay their employees five times more than workers in Mexico, five times more, and 25% more uh, than even a high-cost place like Japan, and roughly two and a half times more than they pay laborers in the manufacturing sector in China. And you look at this strike that they just finished having here a couple months ago, and labor was demanding you know, altogether, their package amounted to about 40% in increases. And why was that? Because they saw management giving themselves enormous bonuses. And, you know, do as I say and not do as I do is not leadership. You can't egregiously pay yourself and then expect the people working for you to want to settle for less. And I think that, you know, the North American car industry, in a lot of ways, has really lacked uh, effective leadership for years, and it uh, it just shows up in the, the the price and their competitiveness. Yeah, I think about the car that I drive, and you know it's got a few years on it. I look at the current model; I can't believe the increase in price. It's it, it like I what when the first time I looked at the sticker on the window and I thought, holy moly, this thing's gone through the roof. But then you look at some of these settlements as you talk about. Uh, and I think I had a relative in the steel business years ago that used to buy steel. And, you know, the, the North American steel industry kind of lost its glitter, if you will, because of the payments that were being made to these unions. And now you're getting steel bought in other parts of the world, right? Like, are we approaching that with the car makers, do you think? Well, you know, it makes you wonder because, you know, U.S. steel at one point was what... Apple is to the market today. You know, it was the biggest company with the most profits, with the best profitability. And U.S. Steel is being bought by a Japanese uh, company and, and for a very, very reasonable price. And you can just see how the glitter has gone out of that because the competitiveness just isn't there like it was. And we're suffering the same thing today. I mean, you look at battery technology is making them uncompetitive. Nearly two-thirds of the world's electric vehicles are now made in China. And uh, BYD, which is uh, the world's largest um, EV manufacturer, recently topped Tesla to become the world's number one producer of EVs. You know? And, of course, people are saying, well, you know, uh, Trump, when he was in, put a 27.5% tariff on Chinese vehicles that's still around today. But that isn't going to help the U.S. 
export their products to the rest of the world. And China controls lithium production, battery manufacturing, and frankly, Ford is licensing battery technology from the Chinese, or at least they they uh, they were. I think they've gotten into in, into some disagreement on that. But in order to have the technology to put electric batteries in cars, Ford isn't developing it in-house. They're licensing the battery technology from the Chinese because they're ahead of us. North America is making an EV that is uncompetitive in price, so Tesla undisputably still has the world's best technology for EVs. But, you know, uh, we're falling behind in so many areas, especially for mass production. I don't think we're going to be able to very competitively produce an electric vehicle that's going to be competitive, especially with the Chinese. I want to fall back on uh, on our show about books to read uh, at Christmas time. You suggested one of them was Power Failure, the William Cohan book about General Electric, which I went and got, and and I would you know you and I were talking about it before we went on the air today. A hugely interesting read, a fascinating read about a a one time huge corporate giant that has gone through a lot of changes. But there was an excerpt in there, Ron, about Thomas Edison and Henry Ford getting together back in the early 1900s. And and Ford was actually thinking about an electric car, because there were some electric motors in cars back then. But then, you know, he met Edison. And Edison said to him, because Ford was starting to work on a gas engine, and he said to him, young man, that's the thing, you have to keep at it. Electric cars must keep near to power stations, the storage battery is too heavy, your car self-contained carries its own power plant, if you had a gasoline-powered one. That's kind of where we are right now, isn't it? We still have the same problem with electric vehicles. I mean, certainly technology's improved, but, you know, many of those issues uh, haven't gone away. People are still uh, find it difficult to... Uh, find a charging station you know range is limited and um, I saw the other day Gord that electric vehicles have 59 or 57 percent more problems than combustion vehicles do so well they're still uh, working out the bugs I think it's fair to say that I mean this is the road we're heading down but we've got a long way to go and a lot of things to overcome in the meantime here yeah I mean just because you point out some of the issues doesn't mean you're a naysayer. I mean, we are moving toward uh, a world that is powered by electricity and renewables and moving away from a world that's powered by uh, fossil fuel. carbon-based fuels. Yeah. I mean, that's, but, you know, um, that's why I'm still driving a car with a combustion engine. I'm not a first adopter. I'm not willing to, to go through the teething pains and the problems that all these vehicles are currently having. When they build out the infrastructure, uh, I think especially when they come out with solid-state batteries in the next two or three years that give you a lot faster charging capability, a lot more distance and more power, um, you know, I think at that point I'm going to be willing to take a look at my next vehicle being an electric car. But until that happens, I, I think these things have a ways to go before I'm willing to look at it. And, of course, uh, there's a lot of people that are reluctant to, to do that. I mean, you look at the dealerships that the North American Big Three have, a lot of them are pushing back and say, look, we don't want to spend the half million dollars or more to convert our dealership to be able to handle EVs right now because, frankly, we're just 
they're, they're not, uh, it's a loss leader for us. And they're just not enough sales to push um, getting everybody to spend all that money to upgrade. So there's some pushback right now, and eventually that's going to change. But frankly, it's going to take some time because generally technology doesn't make massive leaps. It makes small baby steps, and it gets better and better and better. And I fully expect we'll see that happening with uh, electric vehicles. But it's just not going to happen tomorrow. Lack of productivity growth and making things better, cheaper, and faster. Uh, we're not real good at that in North America anymore, it doesn't seem. No, American efficiency uh, growth has been stagnant, and it's grown at 02 percent per year, not 2%, 0.2% per year since 2009. And to put that in perspective, Taiwan's productivity growth is average 4% a year. So they're able to do, produce things better, cheaper, and faster year after year after year after year, where we're not able to do that. And if you think the U.S. has problems, Gord, uh, take a look at uh, Canada's productivity growth is only 77% of America's. So 77% of 0.2. Of <laughs> uh, 0.2, which means that really we've almost stood still over the last 15 years. And much of Europe and especially Asia are now eating our lunch because, uh, you know, it, it, it takes effort and it takes uh, government focus, corporate focus, labor focus to maintain productivity because frankly it's not just our domestic market when you've got an exporting country like canada you have to remain competitive globally or you miss the opportunities you miss the opportunities businesses either close shop or they go elsewhere and that means lower taxes that means fewer jobs and all the associate things that that come with that Okay, uh, what about the mistakes we've made? We often seem to fall into the trap of repeating ourselves in that area. You know, uh, I think Einstein said that the definition of, of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, the three things we talked about, lack of productivity growth, uh, lack of, of uh, new technology, and the, the weight situation, uh, the auto industry has done this over and over and over again in the past. And you ask the question, why is it that we seldom learn from our mistakes and continue to make them over and over again? Uh, that's a big conundrum for me. Okay, so we've talked about some of the things to be concerned about before you think about investing here. So what, what might be the attraction? I guess right now, relatively low prices, right? Yeah, uh, one of the big attractions is that the price-earnings ratio, which is a metric that a lot of value investors use to determine the relative value of a particular investment they're looking at. General Motors is five times earnings, Ford is eight times earnings, and Stellantis is three times earnings. These are amazingly cheap, but uh, they're inexpensive for a reason. They're facing big, big problems, and of course... Right now, trucks and SUVs that are uh, gas-powered, uh, they have big, fat profit margins, and these are the vehicles North Americans love to own and are reluctant to give up for their driving pleasure. But the big three have a lock on this market, and as long as it's allowed to continue, we'll see profitability. But with government mandates uh, requiring more and more vehicles to be electric, 
and you look at the average cost of a car, a new car purchase in Canada was, I think, $50,000, and I think it was closer to sixty in the U.S. You know, you wonder, how can people afford these things? And that's, uh, it's the higher end of the market that North Americans are still pretty good at. And, you know, will that market be around? Because how long, especially with inflation and higher taxes, are people going to be able to afford fifty, sixty, and seventy thousand dollar vehicles? And a lot of them are—they've got these government grants attached to them, which kind of sticks in my saddle a little bit. It means that I'm paying for that as a taxpayer. But uh, you know, sooner or later, those government grants are going to have to come off, aren't they? Yeah, I mean that's obviously uh, an advantage for the big three now because the U.S. government is providing a lot of money, and America First legislation favors the home team, and so you know that's an advantage, but. You know, that not isn't necessarily a long-term advantage. Uh, the U.S. government alone is going to end up paying with higher interest costs. This will be the first year that the interest and all the debt they have is going to be over a trillion dollars. Cool. So sooner or later, there's going to have to be some economic reckoning in the U.S. where they're forced to cut some of these programs that they have because, frankly, they just can't afford them. So I guess to boil it all down... And, uh, you know, if you say, what's the strategy for this session or this sector of the market, the big three are high-risk investments. They have to do a lot of things right uh, to be profitable. And so, you know, you have to ask yourself, are you feeling lucky? I have to say, too, Ron, we've been doing this show about three years. I think it's the first time I've ever seen you put something in big, bold print (laughs) high-risk investment. <laughs> Not something yeah. that I hear come from you very often, but you can see the background of this and why you make that assessment. Yeah, there's just a lot of risks. So certainly these stocks are extraordinarily cheap, but, you know, they're often the terminology used is a value trap. You can buy stocks that are ridiculously cheap because they have big problems. And because it's very hard for them to get beyond those big problems, they stay ridiculously cheap forever. And so, you know, a lot of people in the financial industry consider uh, these three stocks value traps because they've been cheap for a very, very long time. All right, back next week with another edition of Making Money. Going to talk about fees. This is something you should pay attention to if you're an investor because fees can sometimes chew up a lot of what you like to think are your profits, right? Fees can, uh, especially, I think you'll be amazed when we look at some of the numbers of what fees actually cost you in long-term performance. It's, uh, it's amazing. All right, back next week to address that issue on making money. On behalf of the financial coach, Ron Hebert, I'm Gord Whitehead. We'll join you next week. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.